now in the church at Antioch, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was an intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Thanks, Rika. One of the things that I like about Wisconsin in the fall is that when you sort of drive around, you see um, loaded up apple trees. You know what I'm talking about? They're kind of like, they're doing this. They're like, oh, especially the younger ones. Um, especially this year because the weather in the spring created a really good um, budding process and, and um, pollinization process. So this year is a great year for apples. Um, one of the things that I did when I first got here to try to make myself believe that I was going to be here for a while, it is Wisconsin after all, is um, I went and I bought three apple trees and I planted them because you don't get squat for fruit for five years. So it's been five years and this is supposed to be my big first payoff year. <coughs> and two of my trees were kind of a dud this year for whatever reason, but my Honeycrisp is loaded. If you can bring that up if you can. Yeah, it's just like, like, I don't know, you can't really see in the picture that I have like metal things holding stuff up, but you can like see that stick holding up that little branch that has like six apples on it right there. Even the metal piece on that stick is bent, right? And I'm really excited about that. And so, but then I, you know, part of the thing is you're like, what? I just kind of get wondering, like, what is the point of apples? Right? Like, yeah, we've bred them to be bigger, but like, what was the whole point of apples? I mean, and the fun thing is, is that you get to know a word that you may not have otherwise learned, which is the word zookery. Right? I mean, just imagine the scrabble points for that one. Zookery. And here's what, here's what zookery is. Zookery is when animals move seeds. I think it includes like when your dog gets stuff in its fur and you have to brush it 17 times a week in the fall. But it also is when animals voluntarily eat something with seeds in it and then later they deposit it with fertilization in another place. 
right? And the animal does it willingly, without concern for the seeds, but it's a symbiotic relationship, right? That's what Zuchary is. And um, the reason why I think that that is a helpful concept for us to think about to start is that that's kind of a spiritual principle that comes out in Acts chapter 11 and 13. In Acts chapter 11, the, sc- the scattered people from the church in Jerusalem um, came in, into Antioch, and they just started a church, and that's where God had scattered them, and that's where they ended up, and that's where the gospel grew. And then in this situation, the Holy Spirit comes to a church that has a number of leaders, and, it, and the Holy Spirit says, take these people and send them out. He doesn't even say where. He's not like, I want you to send them to Corinth. He just says, just send them out to do some work that I've called them to, that I'm not telling them what it is right now. That's the calling. Just go. Kind of like scattering. And one of the things I think is really important for us to recognize about um, Christian life is that Jesus intentionally scatters the best of his fruit because guess where seeds are found? Now, I know I'm putting together two biblical metaphors that the Bible actually in no place puts together. But logically, they do go together, right? God grows up a people that can carry his word that produces something new. And it brings along—he creates a carrier and a nourisher of the new life to go along with it. Fruit's kind of the perfect metaphor for how God scatters his people. He sends out the seed of his word with people— And sometimes they are sent out by means and purposes that they did not intend, that we did not intend. Some other force comes along and utilizes them that is completely ambivalent to the gospel, but yet moves them, and because the gospel is inside them, the gospel ends up in that new place. Because Jesus has always been doing this. He's always been scattering some of the best of his seeds. And because of that, real spiritual life always leads to a process of growing and splitting and going. And so what that means is, is that there is a zuchary. You can tell—you didn't think you were going to hear this sentence probably this morning coming to church. There is a zuchary to the work in, of the Spirit and of God's providence. There's a way in which he scatters the best of his fruit— to carry his word to all kinds of places, and a lot of times by means that have no interest at all. No interest at all in the gospel. Um, And one of the reasons why it's important to recognize this is because it happens in every church the Holy Spirit is building with any kind of spiritual health, and it happens in any individual life. If God is working in you with any kind of life and spiritual health through faith in Jesus. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, Alexi and I have had four house guests that um, one, uh, one couple lived with us for almost two years, for almost a year, and then God sent them out to what he had them do, and they live in Minneapolis, and they love our family. We love them. Uh, the last time they came by our house and we weren't home, when they just stopped by, one of my kids started crying when she saw the text that, that we'd missed them. That's how much she just wanted to be around them and loves them right? But they live in Minneapolis. We don't get to see them, right? The couple is staying with us this weekend. They, um, they came to faith here. Um, the husband, got, I think, got baptized right there or somewhere where we did baptisms. And, um, and then Epic ate him up and deposited him in the Netherlands 
because he's moving up in his career. And so he and his wife moved to the Netherlands. They've been there eight months. And they were in my kitchen last night teaching my kids how to say I poop often in Dutch. It's very guttural. And they're volunteering in the red light district in Amsterdam, working with women, um, working in prostitution. And their faith is growing in one of the most secular countries in the world. And it's great. And they're going to leave in a day or two. And we're not going to see them for God knows how long. And it's and that's not fun. I, Hannah was at um, Trinity this week, and she started her school there, so she's not going to be in the office hardly at all. And she said, yeah, the in, all the interns that are down at Trinity said hi, which are both named Chris now. So it's Chris, Chris, and Hannah at Trinity in Chicago. And I, Chris actually stopped by this last weekend um, for just a minute to eat a lot of our food, if you know Chris. And— um, we got to see him, but he's at Trinity. He's trained to be in ministry. Um, Chris Helding just got married this year. He was a, a pastoral intern. Now he's going to go off training for ministry. Hannah, God knows where God is going to send her in this world doing Bible translation work. And this is just the way it is. This is, it's just Tuesday. You know what I mean? That's just, that's, what, that's just Tuesday in a normal Christian life. Um, and, and you know that it, it's not just ministry departures. Um, you know, Andrea Mellinger, who was, has been serving this church for three years, she worked in our office um, organizing things for, um, for a little bit more than a year. She just moved to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, to see what God has for her down there. That's like the next step for her. And off she goes, and we had a little lunch for her this week, and off she goes, and who knows when we're going to see her again, right? But there's also all kinds of people who've moved because of their jobs. Like, remember the Dollagers? They're off in San Francisco because Analytics 8 gobbled up Tony and dumped him out in San Francisco. And, and also, there's lots of you who know, like, the 32 missionary families that we support. Some of them were in your friends. Some of them were in your, were your small groups. Some of you wish your kids could play together and grow up together, and you can't because they're in Switzerland or Sweden or Turkey or countries that I can't say the names of. And one of the other realizations that we have to face is the people sitting right next to you, some of the people who are in your church who are some of your best friends. You don't know— when they are going to be gospel zookeried somewhere. You just have no idea. And here's the thing. Your kids, your kids are going to get gospel zookeried if they trust Jesus. I mean, I, there's, I, there's a number of parents who just do not like what their, their kids have been led by God to do. And their, one of their biggest spiritual struggles is accepting what God has called their kid to do. Right? I had a conversation, I think it was last year, where the parent was like, so I'm not sure if my daughter's right in the middle of the Ebola zone or not, but can you pray about that? I'm kind of struggling with her calling right now. That's just part of it. And it, it does get better, though, when you accept that the Holy Spirit has always worked this way, and he's going to work this way. This is, just a, this is just normal life in the gospel. Jesus is interested in the redemption of the whole world. And, and listen, scattering is really the—that is infiltration of seed is the only alternative to conquering armies that subjugate, right? If you want to reach the whole planet, you got two options, right? You can get tanks, bows, planes, peoples, and you can conquer the whole world and subjugate them to a message or a truth. Or you can infiltrate the whole world, enter into all places, and invite all people to it. This is the Holy Spirit's choice, right? So there's two parts of this we need to go over this morning. The first is that the Holy Spirit grows healthy things, that when the Holy Spirit is involved, he grows healthy things. He just does. That's all he does. He only grows healthy things. And that's important because um, 
looking for health is one of the ways to see spiritually whether or not the Holy Spirit is doing something. When you look at the church of Antioch, it's really evident that this church was being, was growing because of the Holy Spirit, because there's, there's two things that you can say about chapter 11 and chapter 13 related to this church. You can see, A, that it's, that it's growing, that they're, and that it's spiritually healthy. In fact, there's more emphasis on its spiritual health than even on its growth, sort of. In chapter 11, there's three references to its growth. But in chapter 13, there's more evidence of health without an emphasis on growth. In, in chapter 11, there's three references to the growing Antioch church, but in chapter 13, there's emphasis on the spiritual health of the people. They were worshiping, they were fasting, they were praying, they were focused on God and who God was, and in that, God's gathered. Does that make sense? And also, there's this huge emphasis on the presence of the Holy Spirit, what's happening. In chapter 11, there's three references to the Holy Spirit being with the church as as it grows and is built. And then in chapter 13, there's another three references, right? They're worshiping and praying, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul, right? One. And then it says, just in the next verse, and they left, what? Under the leading of the Holy Spirit, it says. And then the first time Paul opened his big mouth to tell somebody they were a big dumb animal— It didn't say, and then Paul was so angry he just lashed out however he felt like. It said, Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, said, and then he said what he said. All the way through both of these passages, you see a strong emphasis by Luke to say, look, the Holy Spirit was doing this. God was doing this. God was developing this. God was growing this. God was producing life. And God produces life through the seed of the message about Jesus, the message that Christ interposed himself. He he came into our place and took our guilt, made us right before God if we trust in him. He pours out the person of God, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us and be with us, to free us from the slavery of sin, to make us into a new cosmic family of his adopted children, and to be released to our true human and redemptive potential and the world that he's redeeming and will ultimately bring to a fulfillment in what we call heaven. That is the seed that brings about growth as the Holy Spirit presses it into us. It's what can cause real, the real growth that you really want really comes from that. You can see this emphasis on health when you look at what Luke tells us the church was doing. I mean, surely the church is doing lots of things, but the thing that he focuses on is he he paints a picture of a multicultural leadership team. There's a guy whose nickname is Black, for example. Apparently that's not racist 2,000 years ago to say, okay? Like, there's this guy, his name is, his name is Niger, right? They're like, yeah, he was from there, and we called him that, right? And so they intentionally pay—there's Greeks, there's non-Greeks, he, right? And then he says, and here's what the church was doing together. They were arguing, and they weren't just hanging out. They were worshiping God. They were expressing their devotion, their love, their desire in, their trust in God, to God, in worship. And then it says they were fasting, which is everybody's favorite spiritual discipline. And then they were praying. And one of the things that, that helps, like, so why these, like, one of the things people don't understand is they think that probably fasting is in the Bible in lots of places, and we're just really good at ignoring it. And that's why we don't know lots of verses on fasting. But here's actually one of the reasons why that's true. There is no reference to fasting in any of Paul's epistles or the general epistles at all. None. There's no place that says fast. 
or, t- or even teaches on fasting. There are references to Jesus where Jesus says, when you fast or if you fast, do this. And yet here there's two references in a couple verses. The only place in the whole New Testament. So why double reference fasting when it's not really talked about all that much? It's in the Bible just enough to like stick you with it, but not enough for it to be a major emphasis. So why twice here? And here's, here's why I think, okay, I can't prove this. Here's why I think. Luke chooses to reference three anti-visceral practices of people who are really devoted to God. People who are willing to subjugate their feelings, their bodily drives, what the Bible calls the flesh, which is not your body, but it is the out-of-whackness of our bodies and emotions and mental lives. It is our, like, you walk into the kitchen and you want a potato chip and you're eating one before you even think about whether or not you should be. It is, it is the, oh, I'll just watch TV and I don't even think about it and now there's four hours gone. It's the, it's the just sort of the release of just whatever you want. There's actually a verse in, I can't remember if it's First or Second Timothy, where Paul says, in the last days, people will not be lovers of God, but they will be lovers of their stomach, he says. Right? Why that metaphor? It's because our stomach, that is our appetites, are some of the most visceral things about us. And so fasting becomes this sort of strategic spiritual discipline. It is the discipline that interposes itself between who we are meant to be in Christ and the ground being taken and stolen and eaten up by the kudzu of our flesh. Fasting gets in the middle of that and pushes the weeds back of our bodies controlling us so that we remember in Christ that we are meant to be embodied and to use our bodies and our drives for what they're for. And fasting is only fasting when it is withdrawing from something that is in and of itself good. So like you can't fast from kicking children under six. Like that's not a fast, right? That's repentance. Like you're going to get beat up. Right, that's right. But you can fast from like, you know, Twinkies or coffee or food or, right? In 1 Corinthians 7, it says that in order to give yourself to prayer, even a married couple can refrain from marital things, right? And there's lots of different situations. And why? Because there's a— even things that are naturally good, even things that are naturally commanded in Scripture, like marital people doing marital things— even those things, sometimes you should restrain yourself from them to put your desires and your drives and your bodily urges and the flesh back in its place. Why would you do that? Right? Why would you stop eating Twinkies? Why would anybody do that? Like every time I walk through Menards, I want to buy one of those boxes of Swiss cake rolls and eat it before I get home. And I only live like a mile and a half from Menards. Right? And, and you're like, well, because it's not healthy. Well, sort of, sort of. But it's also the same faculty of willpower that you're building in that discipline that says no to every fleshly desire. And since food is the most intense one, utilizing fasting to overcome the most intense one helps you build the discipline to overcome all of them. The second one being sexuality, the next one being probably anger and fear intuitions that would cause you to react defensively or mean or yell or have an anger problem. And all of these kind of layer on each other. And he says, this church gave itself to the practice of worship and discipline that subjugated the flesh because they really cared about God. 
Christians that really care about God do the kinds of spiritual disciplines that subjugate the flesh. They just do. They fast. They pray. They actually talk to somebody who doesn't physically show himself and audibly talk back, and they do it out of a conviction and a belief that God the Spirit is there, hears and responds, even though they can't touch it, they can't move it, they can't do anything with it. They do it out of conviction, and they push away the flesh of, oh, I'm sleepy, or I've got ideas popping into my head. It produces prayer. It's not for mental discipline, but it does produce some of the same kind of mental disciplines that fasting produces bodily. Because what happens when you try to pray? Thoughts come flying around. Everything goes—and you got to shut up the seven other voices in your head, or if you're taking your medication, three. And then you've got to, like, say, okay, you have to focus on who God is. You have to, like— let the ancillary thoughts go. It creates a, a sort of mental discipline. And worship creates a discipline of self. I am small. God is big. And when Christians do that, deeply, lovingly, powerfully, actively, it is evidence that they care more about God than their stomach. And when they don't—let's just go to the slide— there are a couple different kinds of growth, and we live in a culture that believes so much in what I would just call hype growth. So hype growth, health growth. Okay, that's the distinction I want to make. And hype growth is basically this idea that if we can create a little bit of hype, it will create a visceral reaction in people. Seeing a few people react that way will cause more people to, and we can get momentum. And then once we have momentum, we can create a stampede, and we can sell a lot of these phones. Or we can get a lot of people to go to this college and rack up $170,000 in debt just for their undergrad. Or we can get a lot of people to vote for this person. Or we can get a lot of people to buy this book. Or we get—in fact, one of the most prominent evangelical pastors in America, their ministry came apart. A person that I really liked, partly because he allowed himself to do what everybody else is doing and pay a good bit of money to buy up his books so that other people would frenzy in and it would be a bestseller. Just because he wanted people to read his books, but he allowed himself to use— this mechanism, which is totally normal in the book industry, and yet it was one of the things that collapsed and imploded his ministry. Because people still didn't want to know a pastor did it. Why the heck should anybody do it? It's not real growth. See, it's the difference between a tree that actually grows and a wave of water that has momentum, but if you scoop out a little water and you take it over here, it can't push anything. Everything that it has has only the motion that's there, and then it flops and it's gone. And you can take water, and you can flip it over there, and it's not going to produce a wave. Because hype growth creates nothing with its own internal integrity. And when you take it out, it, it, it's infertile. The, the difference is, is that when you look at health growth, and, okay, and a lot of self-help growth— and a lot of church growth is based in the hype model. A lot of it. But when you think about growth, right, you see that tree, that's still exponential growth, right? Because you'd be like, well, Nick, you're not thinking big enough. Like, you, you know, we want— Well, the tree is still exponential growth. The tree's got like 300 apples on it. I mean, one tree, 300 apples. That's pretty good, right? But the difference is, is you can go to that tree and you can pick an apple— 
And you can stuff it in a bear's gullet, and he can go drop it over on the other side of the highway, and it can grow an apple tree. The apple has in and of itself the capacity and the integrity for life, so it can be scattered. A wave, if you want to take away its power, all you do is put something there that scatters it, and then it just dissipates. It's gone. The kind of growth that the Holy Spirit wants to bring about in a gathered church, in a church movement, in individual lives, is health growth. It's growth where it has real roots, and it's built up from that with a real trunk, and it's spreading out and producing real leaves and real buds that grow real fruit. And you can take something grown by that organism, and you can take it over here, and it produces a whole nother organism because it has a kind of integrity. And so the purpose of the church is not first and foremost growth. In fact, I don't even—I mean, some of you who think cynically about me probably think that I really care about the church's growth. And maybe on some level, viscerally, I do. But when I'm thinking about how we do ministry, I could care stinking less about church growth. What we are trying to do is produce substantive Christians. That's all I care about, producing substantive Christians. But here's—the problem with that is this. When people grow to be substantively godly, not self-righteous and full of pride, but they really become substantively godly, here's the problem, and they do that together. Health is by definition inviting. You don't even have to issue an invitation. It's just inviting. Like, what, what trees do you think that bears and deer—what what do you think they like to go to in the fall? I knew a guy who used to bow hunt over this big apple tree because he just knew. When fall came, the deer were coming. For two weeks in October, he just knew they were coming. Why? Because who doesn't want to go eat apples? I mean, that's—it just—it's inviting. Hopefully there's not somebody there to kill you, right? Like, where do, where do you think all the rabbits in my neighborhood, where do you think they all feel drawn to, right? My lettuce patch, right? And they all come there until they meet the white husky. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's, it's a nature of health that it's inviting. You don't have to have some kind of wave momentum hype growth model. You, you don't have to care about growth at all in terms of whether or not we're good people because our church is growing. It's idiotic. That is so self-important. It's really dumb, right? But what you can say is, what can God make the most in me? What if I really believed and trusted in Jesus, and instead of being focused on my self-righteousness and how I'm better than other people, if I just gave myself to Jesus, opened myself to the presence of God's Holy Spirit, placed myself among a group of people that he's put together that are trying to do that together, and what would God do in me? And what it would produce is a group of people who their gathered life together and the families that they create and their individual lives are fundamentally inviting. The problem is, is that if we focus not on growth and only on seeing what God would make us to be, people are going to come. And then here's the other thing you'll realize, is that you can't be maturely healthy as a Christian and not realize that a huge part of your life is offering the invitation Jesus gives to all people. Mature Christianity always produces people who are evangelistic, people giving the evangel, people offering the good news to others. That's why we're here. It's Jesus' scattering model. And so there's a, a couple applications that I think need to be made about this for this particular church. And that is, I've had a couple people come to me and say, hey Nick, when you first got here, you said High Point Church was not going to be staff-driven. It was going to be a church where um, the staff equipped and helped organize, but we were going to do the ministry. Are you moving away from that? Because I see it's hiring new people and stuff like that. And my response to that, my pithy 
dismissive response is that when I got here, there were eight full-time staff members. Now there's 13, and the church is more than doubled in size. So you tell me what the ratios are. There are only two kinds of positions at High Point on our staff team. Equipping positions and organizing positions. People who will help you figure out how to do ministry and people who will try to create some organization in which you can enter in and do that ministry. There are no, there are no ministers on our staff. You might think, well, what are you doing right now? I'm equipping. That's why you don't have a warm and fuzzy feeling. So what we believe, what I am trying to encourage in everybody who has come here is, is that we are a church that believes that ministry is to be done by every person. All of us are our own tree in that sense. We're trying to grow with the full integrity of the gospel, and God grows fruit in all of our lives. We all share and love, and we live invitingly, and we offer the invitation of the gospel to people. Every one of us is entirely equal in that, and the same in that calling, in a sense. And that we're a church that's part of something bigger than just ourselves. And then secondly, is that if you feel like when you go out into the lobby, like after church, and it's like you don't recognize anybody anymore, or you never recognized anybody in the first place, one of the ways to get past that is simply to utilize smaller and medium-sized groups of all kinds. I actually tell people when they come to Explore class, I say, listen, the church is too big for me probably to ever know your name unless we serve together somehow. Just because that's the only time you get to be with people when a church is large. And so, and it's not just small groups. Small groups are an incredible heart of our church where people get together and they focus on application and spiritual growth. Our small group leaders are some of the most important ministers in terms of just shepherding people, knowing what's going on in people's lives, encouraging people to grow, praying with people, hosting people in their homes. And if you feel at all called by the Holy Spirit to do that, you need to talk to Lloyd or somebody who can direct you in the right direction because we would love to help equip you for that and help you organize that. But all of the places where people gather are opportunities for deeper relationships. So just being on, like, there's eight hospitality teams. Just being on one of those teams and working with those people. What do you think these guys, like, the, the, I went in for the prayer before service. We could get the ministry team to shut up. I mean, they're tall, blah, blah, blah. I thought I was going to have to body slam Vince into the middle of the circle to just to get their attention. And then I realized that he's kind of like slippery judo and I might end up, you know, the receiving end of that. So I didn't, but we finally got them quiet. But why? Because they've been working together for a couple of months. They've, they've, they've sang for us every Sunday in September, and they've like just spent a lot of time together. They're enjoying each other. They're hanging out. They know each other's names. They, they're feeling more known. Ministry team, serving in the children's ministry, you get to know the people serving in that ministry. That becomes like a small group, people that you get to know. And when you're part of something that's a little larger, getting connected to a purposeful group that's part of the big picture. Otherwise, you become like the little silo that hates everybody else. You don't want to be that group. You want to be a smaller group that's part of the big picture. And for some of you, some of the things that you may be longing for, you actually might have to start. I've had conversations with a couple people now about starting a sort of mature Christians group, empty nesters and older. And I've probably talked with three different people who are like, I think this would be great. We could gather people together, and then we could, like, serve in the church and get together with maybe the, the, the grad and career group and have, like, a joint thing together and really, like, work towards the intergenerational goals. And I was like, that's awesome. But here's the thing. I'm never going to start that. Family Life Connection and grad and career did not start because I started them. They both started because people in that, in that group wanted to start something, and they started it, and we helped equip them and helped them organize it. That's it. 
And so I think that 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 would be a great addition to the church, but some people are going to have to get together and start it, and we'll help equip and organize that if you need some help. Does that make sense? Okay, we need to move on to the the, the next thing. The second is that the Holy Spirit then takes the fruit from the health that he grows, and he scatters it. And he does that all the time, and he's not going to stop doing that. And you can see it all through the Bible. Um, Scattering, or what you can, I'm just calling divine zuchary, is a theme all through the Bible. It's not just a theme in Acts 11 or when God blows up the Jerusalem church. I mean, think about this. His scattering, okay, think about this for a second. The book of Acts is framed around two major churches, right? In the first 15 or 20 chapters. The church in Jerusalem, which is where all the Jews were, and then how that like mutates into the church in Antioch, which is Jews and Gentiles. So here's the thing. God spends like seven chapters at the beginning of Acts building this incredible church church movement in Jerusalem. And then Stephen gets killed and persecution comes, and it, what does it say happened to those people? They were scattered, right? Now here's the question. Divinely speaking, what happened there? Did God ruin his movement? Because really the only other logical option is either, either God ruined his movement or he scattered his movement. Right? And you see, what Luke tells us is God built the movement in Jerusalem to scatter it. And then he did, and they went everywhere. And one of the places they went, Antioch, it blew up. It blew up amazing. And when you get to chapter 15, there's a church again in Jerusalem. After the whole thing gets blown up and scattered, there's still an apple left behind after that tree got pulled up and shooken all over the central and middle Near East. But there was another app. There were, there were 12 apples or whatever, that, and they just grew another church. And so you still had a church in Jerusalem, but you had churches everywhere else too. And think about it this way, too. What do you think is the relationship between the incarnation of Jesus, him coming as a human being, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and in the indwelling of all who believe in Jesus? What do you think that technically is? Jesus came as the God-man, totally potent in divine power, himself God, walking through human experience, healing, saving, delivering with enormous power, and how far did that movement reach? Right? There is no credible evidence. There's not even any credible speculation that Jesus ever went more than 200 miles from his, where he was born. I know people write a book every 10 years saying somehow he went to India and that's where he learned to heal and he learned the mystic. There's no evidence of that. The only evidence is he did miracles. Let's come up with a, a weird explanation other than that he was the God-man. Oh, maybe he went to India and learned how to do miracles. Right? That's, that's the logic. It's, it's really pejorative adjective. The point is— The point is, is that what he did was he then— got 12 people and some disciples. He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended. He left. Then after he left, he sent the Holy Spirit into all of them, and then he scattered them all the heck all over the place. Do you see the point? He did the exact same thing. Jesus was the tree. He created his crop. Then he scattered them everywhere, and he left. When the Holy Spirit comes, it is the new scattering of the divine presence. Because Jesus can be the God-man, but there's still no scattering of the divine presence. Only when he redeems a human being, so that human being through faith can become the home of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelled with, with God himself. Once Jesus makes that possible, he's out of here. 
Because now the presence of God can be scattered among all peoples, in all places, in all times. It can go thousands of miles all the way around the globe into new generations. And when we build space stations, it will be an interstellar gospel. Which could never happen with one Jesus. He knew darn well he could only, if he was going to build a worldwide movement, he could only do it out of hype. If he was just going to be one guy. That's all one guy can ever do. So, High Point Church has always believed this. Long before I came here, long before most of you came here, we've always been a church that believes that the Holy Spirit wants us to send out some of the best of God's fruit. And so we have 32 missionaries in lots of different places. We've gone from um, years of giving 10% of our budget to global missions to now moving towards 15% over the next five years. We're already at like 11, 11 point something percent. Last year, at the end of the year, we rebudgeted another 30,000 emissions and gave them another $50,000 to spend in the work that we're doing globally. And when we get to 50, 15% emissions, then my plan is to start another thing to get us to three more percent in church planting. Why? Because we're going to be doing the ministry. We're not going to have to hire piles and piles and piles and piles of staff. So we'll have money to send out of our doors to do ministry. So basically, basically, like you're not allowed to throw food in school. Basically, spiritually, all we're going to do is chuck apples the rest of our lives. We're, we're going to get to have a spiritual food fight. It's going to be awesome. Right? Also, we—some of you know this, we're part of a 10-year-long developmental partnership in the Dominican Republic, where we pick a community that we believe— um, God can use us to help them reach their redemptive potential. We partner with people in the country that invite us. We work with the community with the stuff they want to accomplish for themselves. And we partner with them for 10 years to build up their redemptive potential, both sharing the gospel and also giving them other things that they need and helping them build those things for themselves and to produce capacity rather than increase dependency. We're five years into a 10-year relationship with a, a little village inside of Santo Domingo. This week, I think it was yesterday, was it 29th yesterday? This week, Martyrs who is the in-country Dominican staff person we work with because they just got hit with a tropical storm, right? Which is usually not good for super poor people living at low elevations, right? This is what he wrote, I think, to, um, to Rick and, and Casey Zinda. It's good to hear from all you. Thank you. That, thank God that you are well. Let me thank you and thank God our communities are good. That's all the communities that help, Hands of Hope works with. We talked to the leaders of our communities and their report is good. Thank God nothing happened. Praise God that we solved the flooding problem a couple of years ago in the community of El Morante. It is a good— it is good, though, that this hurricane affected our country because the rain we are getting, it was very dry, meaning they were in a drought, basically. They kind of wanted a hurricane. But El Morante is at the very bottom of the topography of that area, and every time there was even a little bit of a rain, they were in, like, sludge, and, of course, sewage flows downhill. It was awful. And a few years ago, part of, as part of this developmental partnership, drain systems were put in, so now a hurricane can come through and there's not flooding. Now, before you feel too good about yourself, Crossroads, the church we partner with in this developmental partnership, they did that while we were still working with another developmental partnership. But now we're putting in bathrooms so that when the water does flow downhill before it goes in the drains, it doesn't bring all the sewage with it. It's called baby steps. 
But these are very meaningful steps to those communities. And in those communities, then, our short-term mission trips come in, and we share the gospel. We talk about Jesus. We help produce a library that has books about Jesus in it. And so if you understand this, the gospel goes forward in two ways, right? We see two ways, one in chapter 11 and one in chapter 13. Right, you're gonna, you're gonna wake up screaming. Yeah. One is, in chapter 11, is like a d- divine zukri, like the bear comes along and eats it up, whether it's persecution or whether it's modern corporations. They scoop people up, or they drive people out, and they go to new places, and when they get dropped in, for a reason that has nothing to do with the gospel. Ep- Epic's design in sending this couple that's staying at our house to the Netherlands was not that they would be part of the church there, grow amazingly in their faith, and volunteer in the red light district. That was not Epic's design. They just ate the apple. But when they, when they dropped it out, the seeds that were good grew. Does that make sense? And that is, in many ways, friends, listen, our greatest ministry together over the next 25 years, your greatest personal the most meaningful thing that will happen in your life in the next 20 years is the divine zukri that will flow out of your life. The people who will come into your life that will grow in health. There will be a new fruit that God helps to produce spiritually through your life, in your home, in your personal life, in the church that you're a part of. And then God will just pick those people up and send them out. It has nothing to do with a formal missions program. And that will be the most fundamentally powerful work that God will do through you in your life, almost certainly. And while we are doing that, we will also go to places where there aren't any bears, and we will plant apple trees, which is intentional missions. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want that person and that person. I want your best people, and I want you to send them. And the funny thing, it doesn't even say where, right? Just go. Just scatter, go, preach, do, plant. Right? And so I think some of, the, some of the questions we can ask ourselves, what are the applications that we can make? The first two we already talked about, right? One, we got to get on board with Kingdom Zuchary. Listen, people are going to leave. People are going to come. People are going to leave. People are going to feel like it's inviting. They're going to crowd up your church, okay? And it's, it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful because the people that you've, you've ministered to and loved and poured your life into and had their lives poured into yours and incredibly interested, and they're going to leave, and it's going to be—it's going to hurt. And then, for others of you, you, all these people are going to be coming in, and you're going to be like, what happened to my church? And it's going to be painful for you. And for all of us, everybody has to get on board with the fact that, listen, God is going to practice divine zuchary. It's just, it's what, it's, what, it's what he does. It's how he does it. He's been doing it. He's always done it. He's not going to stop doing it. That is normal Christian life. Gospel plus hospitality creates boom, Okay? And um, don't tweet that because that'll be tacky. And then utilizing smaller groups, when you start to feel lost, utilize the smaller groups and you won't feel lost. Don't complain about, oh, I don't know anybody, and, right? All you got to do is just go to a Sunday class and you'll be in an intergenerational, maybe even multi-ethnic, smaller group where you can get to know people. Just walk, I just walk around there. And if you want me to take you or go to the well and be like, I don't think I could get all the way back to Mike A by myself. Just tell them, and they will take you back there. And you can be—or join a small group, or be on a serving team, or anything, anything. And you'll, you'll find people who will know your name, and you'll know their name, and you'll learn about them, and it'll feel more—and so on. Third is, um, 
the elders and I, and I think a lot of people who know about this, we're really committed to the 15% over five years goal. We've already made the first two steps to get there. Um, We think we're on track. But what it's going to mean is is that we're going to do a lot more ministry in-house. We have to as we we grow, and that's the way it's supposed to be, right? And the result of that is going to be saved lives. Literally, people will live and not die because of what we're going to be doing in those partnerships. But also, a lot of people are going to hear the gospel and be equipped to plant gospel trees in new places. The fourth thing is, at what point— are we as a church going to be going to get to the point where we think, you know what, it's time for us to do more than give financial gifts? When is it time for us to go plant churches? Right now, we've we've given a little bit of money to a few church plants. Um, last week, we cut a check. To, we, we were doing a church development grant to a a, a church a predominantly of another an ethnicity who they they really need to develop so that they can pay their pastor full time because bi- bivocational church shepherding is not fun, and we need churches predominantly of other ethnicities to grow and be strengthened. And so we're doing this three year partnership where the money goes down each year to try to get that church to that place. That's great. It's going to help a church develop. That's great. Um, but at what point do we recognize that our church can go down and turn into unhealth at any moment? But if we do what God wants us to do, we just plant a whole nother thing that we're cooperative with. We have relationships, but we don't control them. We don't beam in Nick's message. We allow new voices and new leadership to emerge. We can throw new apples over there. I was at a church thing this week, and I said, listen, there's a, there's a good church in every neighborhood in Madison. And somebody said, do you know one that's near Home Depot that's good? Now, maybe there is one near Home Depot that's good, but I don't know. And they were like, because when we did our assessments, we didn't find one, right? No offense if you know a church near Home Depot that's awesome. Just tell us what it is, and I'll tell the guy, okay? Uh, last, I think it was two weeks ago, I was walking through— I don't know if Dave Louie's here, but I, you're, it's going to sound like you're an awful person, and then you're going to be a hero, so just hang with the illustration. Um, I was walking through, and um, so d- I, you may not know Dave Louie, but he was out in the—he's out in the lobby, and he's talking to some people, and I walk by, and he has— so he's going to be a church planner. He has his Citizens Church shirt on, like greeting at High Point, right? And he's talking, and I heard him say the sentence, you know, um, this is a great church, but if it doesn't work out for you, we're going to be launching in a few months, and, you know, maybe you'll really like what we're going to do at Citizens Church. And I'm like, as I walked right by him, I was walking by him, I was like, should I go beat him up? And then I, and then I realized, he's doing—I explicitly told him to do that. He's like, we're going to plant churches. I was like, you need to fish in our pond. Like, Lexi and I were in Florida. There was this guy that he built a pond in his yard, and he put catfish in it, and they swore to him when he ordered the fish that they wouldn't be able to reproduce. Yeah, they were wrong. And so there were like 15,000 catfish in this pond. He's like, would you please just come catch some because they need to go, okay? I love catfish. There's too many of them, right? And I was like, you need to come fish in our pond. Just come in and just like say, hey, we're going to do this, and you should come to our church instead, and some people will follow you. And like, so now you know that. Like, all the people you don't like, tell them to go talk to David and to Josh— I'm just kidding, right? But we explicitly told them to do that. Why? Because we want to help a little bit. But we need to, we need to flat out plant some churches in the coming years if God helps us to really grow some spiritual health in our midst. Because the Holy Spirit really, I mean, what's the use of planting disease, right? And if we want to be used in church planting, the first thought isn't let's go plant a church. The first thought is let's focus on the gospel, trust in Jesus, Seek to release self-righteousness and fear and believe and trust in and function out of joy and grow in godliness and do what God told us to do and in doing so maybe plant something healthy. And then the last is, you know, in this case, God the Holy Spirit shows up and says, 
he says, um, pick these two guys and send them out. And if you, I think if you read the text closely, it, it, it insinuates that this was a prophetic message. It says there were teachers and prophets, and then it says the Holy Spirit says, and then after the Holy Spirit said it, right, it says that they fasted and prayed some more. And then they put their hands on them and sent them out. So that if you read between the lines there, the narrative is there are people who give prophetic messages. While they were worshiping, one of them gave a message that they said was from the Holy Spirit. Then the people of the church fasted and prayed over that message, whether or not it was right. And then they said, yeah, it is right. And so then they commissioned Barnabas and Saul, okay? Now, would any of us, would we as a church, or would any of us ever know— if the Holy Spirit was, was leading us. Because, I, listen, the Bible is utterly sufficient in its capacity to tell us what is necessary for us to be saved and to grow in godliness, okay? You know, so like, you don't, you don't need the Holy Spirit to tell you screaming at your wife is wrong. Kicking kids is wrong. Like, you, don't, you don't need that. The Bible has everything you need to know that Jesus is Lord, he died for your sins. You should trust and follow him. And to w- the basic message, you need the Holy Spirit to make you open to it, but you don't need the information. But the problem is, is that there are lots of things that fall not within the realm of right and wrong, but fall within the realm of prudence, should I or shouldn't I. And the, the decision isn't a right or wrong decision. It's a decision of, what am I just going to do? Are we going to have another kid or not? Are we going to move to another city or not? Should I take that job or not? Should I start applying for new jobs or not? Should we do this or not? Should we adopt a kid or not? Should we volunteer for this? Do we really want to be a small group leader? Should we do— what? Is there any way in which you are— profoundly, clearly, and distinctly open to the Holy Spirit talking to you by any means. In a sermon, in relationships and spiritual friendships, through a direct internal intuition that you check with other people and pray and fast over yourself, through hearing from somebody with a gift of prophecy, through reading the Bible and see in that passage doing something in you you didn't expect? Is there, because there, there is a work of the Holy Spirit in the present that is leading us not, into, not so much into right or wrong. He'll lead us towards right when we're doing wrong, but in terms of like, do I go left or right? And there's no sense of why. Why Paul and Barnabas? Why not, why not Manan and the other guy? Why these two? Why not the other ones? Why How would we know? Why would we make that decision? How can we tell? Who knows, right? Is there any way in which you, in your understanding of who Jesus is, are actually trying to figure out what it would look like to be open to the Holy Spirit teaching, leading, and directing you? And if not, that's a really good thing to talk in small group about this week, or to talk with a spiritual friend. And if you, if you don't, then, then one of the things you want to do is, is get one. Uh, let me do one more, like, one-and-a-half-minute rant that I did last hour, and I need to do this hour because for even's sake. Um, we have been hitting the drum of multiculturalism a good bit over the last few months, partly because it's everywhere in the Book of Acts, partly because it's a strong value. But one of the ones that we have been talking about, which is equally as important, is the intergenerational nature of the church. Okay? And— one of the, and, and one of the cool things that's been happening is that there's, the students are back, there's piles of 20-somethings everywhere, and um, yet I'm not sure that the intergenerational interactiveness in the church is necessarily getting better right now. So here's what, here's what I want to I encourage you to do, and I, I want to only talk to the 20-somethings right now, okay? 
So if you're in your 20s, I'm talking to you, okay? So I want to say something, and I want to ask you to do something. One is, I would be willing to argue that the proper definition of a grown-up is somebody who enters into a intergenerational situation and they can move between the ages without reference to their age or what they like. So you're a grown-up when you do not need another youth group for you by some name or another. When you walk into this, into this place and the most significant thing for you is not other people of your age, because that is, youth is wrapped around in that. And I'm not saying if that's how you feel, that's your fault. Our whole culture is set up that way. Politically, we divide people by any way we can. Economically, in terms of sales, we divide people. Schooling, everything we do divides people up. So it's not your fault, okay? It is, but, you know. It's a culture of victimhood, right? However, um, we, God wants us to become grown-ups. A grown-up is somebody who is a grown-up, and within the full spectrum of grown-ups, they function well within the whole spectrum of grown-ups, which is— Whenever you become a grown-up to whenever people shuffle off this mortal coil. That's when you're a grown-up. So what I would encourage you, if you're in your 20s, there's plenty of paper in the recycling bin. You get a paper and put together a interaction scorecard for Sunday morning, okay? Anyway, you have, you have, so you have one box for, I have to bend my knees to talk to this person, six or under, right? And then you have another one for like, they have so many wrinkles, it looks like they're scowling at me, Right? And then you have like one for like, they, ha they have a bunch of kids or something. And then they have one for like, their kids are like teenagers, they're three life stages ahead of me. And you go and you like, you have to check off all the boxes and then you like argue with your friends at lunch over like who wins and whoever wins doesn't have to pay or something or I don't know what. But like, something in which you in very intentionally, and here's, here's why that is. Because when you feel like some of the older saints, empty nesters and older saints, are curmudgeonly and they're scowling at you, Here's what I need you to understand. For, for some of those people, that's just the way their face looks, okay? And you, you need to not take that personally, okay? Um, but for some people, they really are curmudgeonly, and here's what you need to know about elderly curmudgeonliness. Because one, it's normal human experience, and you're going to fight against it for 50 to 70 years of your life if you don't fall into it yourself, okay? When you get older, you just start getting frustrated at things. But the main thing that produces and exacerbates curmudgeonliness is the dismissiveness of younger people that is either felt and not real or felt in Israel. Not in Israel, but Israel. Right? It, it's the idea that you like, you just kind of hear in the news and you're just kind of generally treated like if you're older than, you know, 27, you can't have anything of substance to say. You've accomplished everything you're going to meaningfully accomplish in your life. And the only purpose you still have in the world is to be the oppressor that they're fighting against. Okay? And there are lots of ways in which—yes, David Miller, that's you. And there are lots of ways in which— this can be subtly communicated and felt, and it produces this rift that is unspoken, unintentioned, and is when, and when older people often actually kind of act curmudgeonly, it is the product of a defense mechanism that is entirely normal and that can actually be easily crossed with a simple word of kindness, a word of interest, an action like you think they might have something worthwhile to say to you, or that they should continue living and they're not using up valuable resources and what, by not being dead. And so, it, like, if you took that and kind of ran with that a little bit, um, it would be enormously maturing for you. 
And it would also be very helpful for some older people that really do feel like they've been pushed out of the game. And then another time, I'll like yell at them about how like they need to like go out of their way and move towards younger people. Because here's the thing, this church cannot achieve its redemptive potential without people who are over 60. It cannot. So much experience, so much memory. There are cycles that you haven't been through four times. 70-year-olds have literally been through those cycles of public opinion and lifestyle like five times. And they're like, they're not fooled by anymore. It sounds brilliant to you, right? You need them. You need them. And you can—no group of humans can reach its redemptive potential without people who are older. You don't have to do everything that they say. You don't have to believe everything that they believe. But you can move towards them and increase our redemptive potential and help everybody become who they're meant to be and utilize the giftings and skills and abilities and capacities. And the older generations, one of their, one of their huge capacities is to be the affirmational generation. You see, when we separate from them, they become the, they become the non-affirmational generation to us. They go, well, those kids are real, right? But the minute you show some respect and you move towards them and you listen to what they, is really at the heart of what they want, and you say, now listen, I'm going to reappropriate. It's not going to look exactly the way you want it, but I believe those same things, and I'm going to do it this way in this cultural moment. And they see that, then they can see your insanity, but know that you're being faithful to certain things, and they can become the blessing and affirmational generation that is the— is where they are in their life stage. And it produces power and health and life and beauty in a truly intergenerational community. And lots of other things, community, gospel-centeredness, Bible-centeredness, multi-generational, multi-generational and multi-ethnic, all those thrive better in a community that is healthy between generations. I think those six things are incredibly important. Is part of our corporate life together, but part of our individual lives with Jesus. And you can't do it all by yourself, and you shouldn't be like, well, I'm gonna— No, you need to trust Jesus. Open yourself to what God the Holy Spirit wants to do in you individually and in the body of believers you're a part of, and walk into it with faith. Not self-righteousness, not I'm gonna do it, not, oh, not in fear, I can't do it, but trusting that in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in his family, he will do it in and through and with you, and he will empower you if you will put your trust in him, say no to fear or pride, and trust him to do it. Let's pray. Father, thanks um, for this chapter. Thank you for the truths it professes. I pray that you take the stuff that I said that's helpful and bring it to people's memory and make it part of their conversations and part of their convictions, and I pray that the other stuff that they would quickly forget. And we pray that as we take a minute now to focus on you, who are our cornerstone, the foundation of everything that we do, help us to commit ourselves to you and to recognize it's in you and it's in your power and truthfulness and goodness that these things come to happen and not through our own, our own strength or our own idolatry of self. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.